1: Hello, I'm Natalia Shpilova-Said. I'm a host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with George Miheychak about his translation of Volodymyr Vynnychenko's plays. The book is titled Disharmony and Other Plays, and it was published by Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies Press in 2020. George Miheychak is a professor at Georgetown University. In addition to teaching languages, he offers a range of courses on Russian literature, from general surveys such as 19th-century Russian literature to upper-level courses on Chekhov Russian literary modernism and literature of the other Europe. His research interests include issues in late 19th-century Russian literature, a discourse of functional approach to narration, rhetoric, Ukrainian literature, and translation. He's currently working on a study of the pursuit of high culture in Ukrainian literature of the 19th century. Uh, hello, um, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today.
2: It's nice to be here. Thank you.
1: So, uh, Benychenko is one of the ambiguous figures in Ukrainian literature, and it is so for many reasons. On the one hand, he's a writer, and on the other hand, his political views include both national aspirations of Ukraine and the pursuit of programs which were marked by socialist and uh, federalist ideas. Uh, He criticized the Soviet developments, but at the same time, at some point, uh, he also tried to negotiate with the Soviets. What's a starting point to find the key to a complex and ambiguous manifestations of Vyndichenko?
2: I think, as you said, it's more of the modernist position. In other words, what for him was a moral grounding, I think, that socialists should be new people. That it wasn't simply a matter of changing one badge for another, but that one had to change internally. This was a view that Tolstoy had felt about punishment and crime, that a person had to actually go through an internal change to become a different human being. And I think this is, in fact, one of the topics that's taken up in his first play, Disharmony, where there is a question, of what does it mean to be the new people? And essentially, there are two points of view, which is why I think the, the first, and this is his first drama, <clears> that make it so interesting. One is the Nietzschean will to power. The Socialist Party simply needs to be more powerful than the gendarmes and the Soviet, or I almost said Soviets, sorry, the Russian imperial system. Uh, the other character, the main character, is one who's saying, no, we have to be leaders by example. That is, we have to offer a better vision, not just a matter of strength. Um, Vindichenko, in that play, does not offer a resolution to the issue, but he provides these two approaches. Simply the will to power, you know, that force will decide versus we have to be more noble. This also resonates in another one of the plays as well. So it's a theme he comes back to. And I think that's the fascinating issue, you know, um, how do you be the moral example, but still try to effect the change?
1: So, Vynichenko's literary path was rather dramatic as well. Uh, today, he's compared to a number of uh, European writers. Uh, however, during the uh, Soviet period, his works uh, in Ukraine were not quite welcomed. Um, what contributed to this drastic change in his writing career?
2: Well, what's actually astonishing, he's declared persona non grata in 1921 by the Soviets, and then they publish a full volume of his works, I believe, from 1926 to 1930, which to me is absolutely astonishing. Um, At this point, I think in the 30s with socialist realism and the end to Ukrainization, it's probably not surprising that many immigrant writers were simply dismissed or removed from the canon of Soviet literature or Ukrainian Soviet literature. And so Vindichenko has disappeared as well. Um, there are occasionally some articles that appeared, they had to be very careful, but 1987, we begin to see a kind of first efforts to bring him back into the mainstream of Ukrainian literature. And I think today he, he has a place Uh, in Ukrainian literature, and one can discuss these things openly now in a way that one couldn't back then.
1: So uh, before we um, uh, discuss uh, his uh, place in more detail, uh, I would like um, to talk a little bit about Venichenko as a a statesman. Uh, Some emphasize that uh, in his views, he progressed from uh, his belief that Ukraine should uh, be an equal partner of Russia, but still Ukraine should be part of Russia. Uh, And uh, he changed his idea to the belief uh, uh, of a federal union of Russia and Ukraine. Finally, he advocates for Ukraine's independence, but uh, in order to achieve it, um, national to achieve its national revival, uh, it had to uh, take place uh, in Ukraine first. So, how would you locate and identify Vynnychenko in terms of his political views? I
2: think most, if you look at the nineteenth-century tradition, whether you goes Kostomarov, Kulish, uh, historians, no one really believed that a separate. Independent Ukraine would even be possible. But the notion that Ukraine has its own distinctive tradition, history, language was really the question that was fought throughout the 19th century, even earlier, of course, but certainly in the 19th century. You know, the notion of an empire, and this is where it becomes so difficult with Russia's understanding of Ukraine is it a southern Russian people where the language is merely a dialect? And therefore, in the times of Kiev and Rus, we had Russia made up of the three fraternal Eastern Slavic peoples. And so Ukraine is essentially part of Russian history. Um, It's not a separate people. It's a part that was driven apart from the north. Because when the Mongols invaded, we have the split then. And uh, you have people like Polivoy arguing, in fact, that the true Russians are those in the north, you know, um, and the Ukrainians only show up as a people with the Cossacks, taking on the Mongols then and sort of a defense force, and that's when Ukrainians come into being. Well, if you begin from that position, late 18th century, and you get Historia Russov, you know, the, the question of the traditions of the hegemonate and so on, um, no one of the 19th century figures, at least up to mid-19th century, most of them all were actually officials in the Russian or imperial government in some capacity. So I don't think anyone thought of separatism as one feasible or necessary. They could see themselves being related, but different. You know, we are one of the peoples that make up the empire. So I think that Vinichenko probably inherited this position, you know, and even Lipinski and various other sort of figures that showed up arguing for a separate Ukrainian state, or a separate, that comes rather late. Uh, Think of the possibilities now with the 1905 revolution, when things did change, Ukrainian was acknowledged as an official language, the was ended, you could publish now works in translation, you could stage those in the theater in Ukraine in translation, because that was forbidden up until very late. And you couldn't even stage historical dramas until the 1890s in Ukrainian theater. So those possibilities gradually changed. And I think then as a socialist, uh, Vinichenko saw possibilities, but hadn't imagined that there would be enough of force, an internal Ukrainian force to push for independence. And I think that's really was the consequence then of World War I when the empire collapses and the Soviets have not yet taken power or consolidated their grip on power. And that's why I remember he went to Moscow to negotiate after, you know, to see if it was possible to, to find a place even in the Soviet state. So even after the national Ukrainian national Republic uh, was defeated, Uh, he still thought perhaps it might be possible to find a federated position for Ukraine so I think that evolved just depending on the political situation and I think that he just didn't believe that the promises that were made or that they were so vague that I think he realized he would be no more than a figurehead he wouldn't be able to actually Institute the kind of changes and I think it must have been quite a surprise to see ukrainization but, you know, the charges that arose in the late 20s were what? Separatism, right? That So the same theme showed up again, that if you give Ukrainians or the Ukrainian people a chance, it won't be federation that they want. It's actually separatism and independence. And so it's not surprising that he evolved as a situation evolved. And I think the only option for him was to emigrate, which he did in 1921.
1: Yeah, um, that's interesting because uh, his um evolution or maybe his transformation, right, in terms of uh, these uh, questions, in terms of this issue concerning Ukraine as an uh, autonomous or as an independent unit, uh, developed the same way maybe to some extent as lesya, Ukrainka, um, uh, lesya Ukrainka's idea. So she also first saw Ukraine as part of Russia, and maybe there was some hope that uh, there would be some... Uh, partner partnership or partners relationships between uh, Ukraine and Russia but then she gradually also changes and realizes that uh, uh, Russia won't support uh, all these aspirations um, uh, of uh, the ukrainians and uh, the same uh, we can observe in uh, uh, Budnichenko's right ideas uh, about which he actually writes in his Diaries uh, where he and um, one one uh, another thing Thing that um, also uh, picked my attention and interest was that uh, Lisa Ukrainka goes abroad and she um, uh, observes uh, some uh, social changes uh, and uh, compares them to what she was experiencing uh, in Ukraine. And uh, the same, maybe not the same, but similar happens to Vinnychenko, where he goes abroad and he sees how Ukraine is not seen uh, even as a separate uh, people, um, let alone separate uh, political unit. And it somehow also contributes to this kind of transformation from uh, being a partner with Russia to just uh, being uh, autonomous and um, independent. So I'm curious about this um, uh, traveling abroad, uh, particularly in the case of Bundachenko and um, his um, uh, evolution um, as a politician, maybe, and as a
2: writer. I know he, he had to flee. As you know, he had trouble with the authorities, and he was going to be drafted into the army and fled. Um, he was arrested at one point crossing the border with, with revolutionary and realized that he would be sent to Siberia. So he did go to France at a time when he got to see modernism you know, and, and all of that going on in France and Europe. And of course it gives you a different perspective. I don't know that it changed his view until really 1905. In other words, the 1905, I think was a crucial moment when there is hope that within the empire it might be possible to gain concessions. And they did make some concessions so that initially you feel there is hope and this is what the play disharmony is about and of course they're dashed um and so you realize there is no accommodation actually possible the empire i think was quite aware that if we allow certain concessions to the ukrainians we are going to have trouble for example they could not they would not allow the publication of the bible until i think 1899 and that was done by the british bible society through galicia so The Bible translation was completed, but uh, to acknowledge the language as capable, right, would then mean you would have to acknowledge that it can be used in literature and then there are separate people and so on. And it simply didn't fit within the imperial narrative. And then remember, the, the whole notion of Ukrainian separatism was presented to the Tsar as an Austrian plot, first a Polish plot in the 30s, and then an Austrian plot with, led to the Mzukas. So, uh, it's it's an astonishing trajectory to me as, as an older generation whose father, you know, dreamed of an independent Ukraine but never thought it would be, you know, ever come to pass. And then to have at least lived to see it and come back was was an, to Ukraine to visit those places. Uh, is an astonishing transformation. But you can see how difficult it is for Russia, even to this day, to find an accommodation. Where do these people fit? You know, um, And if you're going to claim Kiev as your heritage, as your birthplace, and at the same time the Ukrainians are saying, yes, but it's in Ukraine, you, you have to at one point say, well, you can't fit this into the master narrative that's been presented. Mm-hmm. So I think this is essentially seeing this from abroad was I see a different way of life, but there's simply no way to bring this about. That is, I did not see in, and I've read the letters of Lesio Ukrainka. You brought her up; she was aware of these wonderful things and the differences and the slights that Ukrainians suffered in trying to get publications in Ukrainian, in Ukraine, in key of how difficult it was with the administration, the imperial administration. But no one thought at that stage of, of revolution, you know, um, so it's easy to fault them for being conservative. I just think that it, it didn't seem realistic at all. You know one can talk about certain things Mm -hmm. the right of the language to exist the literature to exist we are a separate people but to get that kind of political power and that was the hope that in some way with the duma Mm
0: -hmm.
2: we would have a federated somehow you know system and the same with the soviet union and lenin's position on the different nationalities Mm -hmm. that it shouldn't just be russian chauvinism but an acknowledgement of communist parties in the national you know republics um, but in the end, you can see this is always going to be a threat, so it's a matter of the part and the whole, and um, you can see things from abroad, but I think it didn't spur, it seems, other than some comments in because letters or in his diary, it didn't really lead to sort of political activism on either part. Right,
1: right. Uh, it didn't lead to uh, some political activism, but uh, uh, the letters can probably be viewed as some stage of construction yes. of this yes. uh, uh, idea of Ukraine as being independent yes. at all. But uh, 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 like you said, it's not political statement, but at least it's this uh, uh, the birth of the idea, right, that it takes yes. some material form. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think for the intelligentsia, is always aware of this more, right? There, I mean, think of Kulish, Kostomarov. You know, they raised issues with Osnova in the 60s. Um, but this is not. I mean, the peasantry knows they're not Russian, you know. But they're not really actively engaged in campaigning for these or those rights. Uh, that wasn't possible. So I think that's why the, the, there was so much hope with the collapse, you know, after World War One of the empire that people thought, well, there will be a possibility. And that's why there was support for a short time. And then, I mean, there was support throughout Ukraine in the vote for independence, which is, you know, every oblast voted it's astonishing to me. You know, when you, you realize that whether you're a Russian mm-hmm. ethnically or even a Russian speaker at home and so forth, you opted for this rather than the old order Mm -hmm. Uh, it's not a matter of I want to be transformed somehow into an ethnic Ukrainian Mm -hmm. but the sense of a federation and we would then have rights and we would benefit somehow Mm
1: -hmm. yeah uh, paradoxically this uh, question about what Ukraine is and what Ukrainians are also involves this question about how Russia sees itself and how Russians uh, see Russia and um, as uh, we see today even today uh, Russia doesn't see Uh, itself without Ukraine so somehow it's uh,
2: well, well I think you raise okay. a good point in other words by having this situation change now you know it forces a discussion about those very issues You know, before the empire could silence it you simply could prevent journals publishing these kinds of articles you could shut them down there was a censorship and so forth uh, and now you're left saying, well, they must not be Russian. And, and it's like, well, we, we may not be happy because of the problems then with the master narrative we have about our own origins and who we are as Russians and so forth. But the longer it seems to me this state exists as an independent state with some viability, you know, it becomes harder and harder to ignore, and then you're going to get a generation that will modify its view. I mean, remember Stalin said after World War II, he would have been glad to deport all the Ukrainians. There were just too many of them. And so the fact that you have sheer sort of critical mass, and you have a structure going, and these issues are debated, and Russians are aware of it as well, um, you're always going to have a radical, you know, wing or very conservative, whichever way you want to look at this, right wing. But um, it is a fracturing of the narrative, mm-hmm. and that, like you said yourself, you know that idea is now out there, and it now has taken on a viable form or visible form. And one can say, I re- can't remember who it was. One of the younger generation writers said, "Things will not change between Ukraine and Russia until the Ukraine, until the Russians see things differently."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But the notion is that. That is what a younger generation eventually comes to, you know. It just goes, well, oh, that's the way kind of it is, mm-hmm. um, and that seems to me the kind of Pumalenko approach, you know, <laughs> might actually have benefits because it's very hard to absorb. I remember being a student in England, and at one of these gatherings, uh, there was a former, well, former British officer, relatively young, who was still talking about. The British Raj. And I thought, this is 1970. India got independence in 47, you know. And while it may still be for some a kind of a great loss or something, the nation has moved on and accepted that this is how things are. Um, That's kind of my optimistic hope uh, that in, in the end, yeah, you're going to have to modify the narrative. And now, you know, at least historians are raising these questions you know the the current younger historians are going well we have to reassess now in kiev and Rus. what does it mean who were these people then and how does it work i mean you know karamzin had written off the ukrainians for 500 years and even his contemporaries and his Gosudarstvo, you know Istoriya Gosudarstva Russkogo, realized how can that be if Kiev is the cradle of russia then what happened to the cradle of russia for 500 years because he doesn't bring them back until the pereyaslav you know till till ukraine becomes again part of russian history so this is a long long standing problem mm-hmm. but it's also one that russians understand one has to come up with some explanation and one can only hope You know, that these various attempts will be peaceful, it's not so peaceful at the moment, we know, but, you know, that it doesn't evolve or devolve back to a situation of an empire Mm
0: -hmm.
2: of some kind.
1: So uh, in the introduction to your translation volume, you also provided a very detailed background for reading Vinichenko's dramas. And uh, you cover not only historical context, but also philosophical. Uh, in some sense, uh, we could probably call Vinichenko a philosopher uh, with yeah. his views yeah. on the individual and uh, on life. So what's the core of Vinichenko's philosophy?
2: I-, I think his struggle was... How can you be, I mean, it's very modern in the sense of it's almost like Sartre, you bear the response. I mean, some have compared him, uh, seen or f- tried to frame it as an existentialist. Mm. The reason I've, I've been cautious about that is the issue of the individual already begins with Rousseau. So, you know, for me, it's the German tradition, Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, that really bring this issue up. And that's what I brought out in the introduction. The question of how can I be autonomous, self-governing, I decide for myself. And in disharmony, that's precisely the, if you, well, you've read the introduction. So at one point he says, I have to decide for myself, you no, know, for it to be genuinely me. And that's the question. How can I be a genuine me within a structure of a society? And this is always an issue. It's not only Vynychenko, but I think this is the crucial part, um, the pressure within the socialist group or the revolutionaries, you know, uh, being true to your, your own sexual feelings, which, you know, is a kind of taboo subject uh, or began to break in post-Victorian literature in the West as well as in Ukraine. Uh, so um, to me, this is this disharmony. When you are not true to yourself, you know, you have failed to live a genuine life. And right now, frankly, one of the key words for the younger generation is authenticity. You know, how am I an authentic me? Uh, and, and the problem is, of course, you're not just a me, you also live in a community and a society and so forth. And, you know, as Rousseau was saying, you have a private self, but in society, you have to conform. There are certain mores, codes of behavior and so forth. Uh, and here, I think it's really the philosophical issue you know, how do I stand for my beliefs? You know, and, and uh, <clears throat> the one character that in, who is, comes out of prison in disharmony said, "I thought it would be so easy to live when I came out of prison to live my own life again." To, to, and he says, "And how hard it is, I see." Um, and that's that's that chastny suboyu, you know, honesty with oneself. And there is no answer. I, I don't think he comes to it. I think he realizes that it's not a simple issue and it's never been historically and philosophically. But that's the crux of the matter all the time. You know, can you be genuine? And what does it mean? And that's why I think the endings in some of those plays, they are tragic, precisely because to be the genuine self, I have to follow my belief, or my conscience, even if it leads to my death. Mm -hmm. And all of them sacrifice the women in in particular.
1: So, um, Vinicienko uh, advocates for being honest with oneself and uh, for being uh, genuine, Uh, but it looks like um, there are so many challenges that that result um, into the individual, probably, who is tormented. Um, So, uh, uh, in uh, his drama, uh, Lies, uh, in particular, uh, it looks like an individual's nature is a source of challenges and struggles. Uh, But these arise of the individual's constant negotiation uh, with themselves, whether they are aware of this or not. Uh, For example, uh, Natalia Palivna, um, Mm -hmm. I would say, is tormented by her feelings towards both Tosi and Andriy. Uh, Her Mm -hmm. husband's father is also a source of her torment. She feels sorry for him to the point Mm -hmm. where she's about to uh, break down. And uh, this torment manifests, to some extent, Natalia Pavlovna's negotiation of her desires and her duties. Uh, But the latter duties are not entirely perceived as something that is restraining. Uh, In this case, it can also be liberating, probably, uh, as they prompt one's negotiation uh, with oneself, maybe this idea of negotiation with oneself is uh, that source that can be liberating.
2: Mm-hmm. See, I think that's the, you. you and that, that I think is the, that's the position I took. And when I looked at these plays, what I I saw was, strange as it may be, to argue for to live my authentic life, I am entitled to live that. That's that's true. Mm-hmm. The problem is the price. And what happens in Vinnychenko every time when there is another life or someone else's life at stake, the others back down. They sacrifice for the greater good. In every play, that's exactly what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not a selfish, I simply go after what I want. You know, it's it's very much a consideration of what is the greater good. You know, when she throws the bomb, you know, in bazaar, Mm-hmm. And, and she's going to die, you know, there's no question of why she's doing it. You know, it has to be done for the greater good and that's all. And it's not, what's interesting, it's not political ideology. That is, if you look in the play, there's no discussion of political ideology. So it, it doesn't become a tractat, you know, where, where vinichenko is polemicizing or, or getting up and preaching a revolutionary message. But it's simply that I cannot be true to myself and make others pay the price Mm -hmm. and the same thing with Natalia you know all of them they take poison they commit suicide whatever it is because the cost would be too high remember she says I cannot have his father lose faith in humanity and if that's the choice then notice I give up my own dreams of happiness with Antosh or Tos you know for the sake of what is greater and the greater is always beyond me, which is astonishing <laughs> to me, given that you have this, you know, harmony being, means being true to yourself. But this is why I think it's the Kantian issue. Mm-hmm. You have to treat others as an end, not as a means, right? So that even though you will decide for yourself, you have to give the same rights to others. Otherwise, you end up with tyranny, you know, and then you can justify everything. And this is the the, the problem in disharmony. When the, one of the characters who's a revolutionary and takes the Nietzschean view, we just need power. How we get it and what we do with it, there's nothing else except power. But even he at one point concedes in the love that he made a mistake, that he shouldn't have done this and ruined her happiness and marriage. You know, um, So that is the unresolved mm-hmm. dilemma. Mm-hmm. Nowhere does he actually offer a vision of how one can reconcile it he just says, these are the two impulses we have. And in the end, we essentially follow what is the golden rule, as I brought it up from the Bible. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which is the Kantian same thing. You know, you have to treat others. You have to give them those rights. Otherwise, and this is the same thing that Hegel realized. If you are true just to your own heart, like, like Stalinsky, you can create all kinds of perverse things and you're entirely in keeping with your conscience because your conscience does not take account or need to take account of anyone else i'm living fully within the ideology that i believe and i'm true to myself and both hegel and Kant realize if you do that it's 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 a disaster
1: Mm -hmm. uh i would like to digress at this point a little bit and uh, um um and uh, have you comment on uh, uh, Vynichenko's novels uh, in terms of the exploration of this particular issue of being honest with oneself and being genuine? And at this point, I'm thinking about his novel um, Stalin," uh, take the floor, Stalin, uh, and, <laughs> uh, and and um, uh, well. On, one le- on some level, I think that um, there is uh, this idea of being honest with oneself because the characters somehow try to uh, be genuine about their political beliefs. But on the other hand, um, I- I'm not sure, I'm not sure if, they, if, it, if that's their genuine belief, uh, to be um, to be accepting the Soviet regime, because there are these ambiguous statements uh, where the Soviet regime uh, is seen as something cruel and uh, something that goes against uh, the um, individual's nature. However, um, the characters do try to negotiate somehow, but uh, is it presented as something that? can also be called uh, being honest with oneself. Well, uh, and of course, uh, this novel is uh, completely different from the plays because there are political statements here and uh, there are um, uh, ideological uh, explanations as well. Uh, the The entire novel is based on
2: um, on, on, these, um, uh, on these aspects. Uh, I think you raised the, the difference, I think maybe in this one, because the the ones I read it, I mean, I read Potoy, that was a long time ago. And then I read yes, boy. you know, and there, um, remember Dora, I think her name is Dora, decides to have an affair. And the reason that's possible, I think, is that she's not married and her partner, therefore there's no claim, and her partner sort of, which must've been very shocking for the time period, sort of allows this, or to even have a woman go to a hotel on the assumption that she has the same rights as men having affairs, but no one then is essentially hurt by that. When, if you contrast it to the plays, whenever there's a price, mm-hmm. then the individual steps back. And this is again, to me, the same thing with the Kant. You know, if in I'm not sure because I haven't read that particular novel. You know, Slovo zatvory. If the person says well i am being true to myself mm-hmm. meaning i believe in the ideology what the critique to me would seem to be that vinichenko would make out of that whole german idealist tradition from you know kant hegel onward is that you have to give the same rights to the other person you know so that you of course you can adhere to your point of view and say therefore but this is stalinsky you know this is stalinsky in the play mm-hmm you know, uh, sin, where, where he says, yeah. He said, you know what your problem is, you know, your problem is that you you care for your fellow, um, you know, political comrades. I don't. And so you can't help it. You're always going to be trapped. But if you just rule over them, but ruling over them means you do not care. Mm-hmm. And see, I think in all of Inichenko's works, that's not the tenable position there may be people like Stalinsky who will do that. But I think in, in Vinichenko, that's always condemned. Those are the people who then perpetrate evil or can perpetrate evil in the name of good or the name of whatever. It's like Dostoevsky said, the crucial part is not the truth, it's man, you know, humans. Mm-hmm. And when you cross that border where humans don't matter in the name of some truth that you have, you can start doing all kinds of perverse things. And essentially, that's what happened with Stajanski.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, and the conflict in Venichenko's dramas is also augmented by this necessity to make a choice. Yes. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. And yes.
1: Uh, in Black Panther and White Bear, the characters are put in this situation when they have to choose their personal yep. priorities, which um, one can call selfish, or yep. the priorities of others, which one can call a sec- uh, sacrifice. And this choice uh, creates some internal conflict as well. Uh, how does one deal with this choice? Does Shevchenko point to ways that can help avoid this emotional turmoil, or, or maybe it's not necessary to avoid the emotional turmoil? Maybe it's part of humans' nature and individuals' nature.
2: Yeah, I think you you brought up the right play for that. Mm-hmm. You know, because what you have then is the claim of the artist, White Bear, saying, you know, I have a right to be the artist. I sacrificed for the family. Remember when he tries to tell her, now you go to, you know, the art dealer and, and essentially prostitute yourselves to Moulin. And she goes, you expect me to do that? He said, yes. But in every act of the play, they always say, I love you. You know, I can't understand how. And, and then when, when uh, Snowflake, you know, Snezhinka says, leave, you know, and he goes, I can't. I can't. And he's free to do so and notice he can't Uh, and that's that conflict and he said we need something more than the family Uh, and the point is no i don't think vinicenco he realizes that's the dilemma and there's no answer that's ready made how you handle this but he does not leave even when he is in a position to do so lesic has died there's nothing holding them anymore and he still doesn't leave Uh, and even, you know, Black Panther, when she dances with Mulan and all those for kisses and everything else, she she doesn't take that last step. The betrayal never actually occurs in there. And the fact of being the artist where you would have the right to be the artist is but I'm also in the family. So and I didn't believe how much I love you, he says to her, and Lessig. And that's the problem. I, I think it's you know it, you know yourself, if it becomes too simplistic, then we become, oh, it's not really great drama because it's just, oh, it's a happy ending or it's like, oh, my goodness, it's manipulated. And here it's precisely, no matter what play you read, we end up in the same point.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Individuals confronted, as you say, negotiating, and in the end, can't because they realize, and that's why I said I think it's a comment on their moral stature, that they are willing to take the consequences, which are harsh, precisely not to hurt or to destroy the good. And that's that self-sacrifice that's, you know, is always astonishing, I think, in humans, that you think, wow, you know, there is no greater good than to give your life for another. And you think, yeah, I don't know how many of us (laughs) are are ready to do that. One psychologist had an interesting point, said, you know, we are compelled And people go, no, no, but you always have a choice. And he said, well, let me give you this example. The house is burning, your child is inside. You know that if you go in, you're likely to get, you may not make it. Would you go in? Said, and I can tell you, you will. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: You know, in other words, you have a choice, of course, but then on the other hand, you don't if you have that kind of human bond and his heroes and heroines, they suffer precisely. I mean, think how Natalia suffers because, you know, and this, and that, and she can't, she's tormented, then with Stratinovich, she You know, starts, to do, I love you, I really do, and you think, oh, this is all, what a devious woman, right? And what, what raises her out of being just a sexual being for her own pleasure is precisely the moral growth to say, no, and it's not that she crosses the boundary, we don't know that. Mnichenko's, he shows that very slowly. So I think the first step is, the viewer suspects we have loose women, that's all we have, you know, they're driven by sex, and you know how those women are, uh, you know, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, there, there's more to this, and then that's, there, there is no way out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that's, that's why I think they resonate so proudly as tragedies, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. wow. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I have a question about translation itself yes so uh what was the most challenging part in translating Dimitchenko into english
2: i think what what happens as you'd probably well you're probably very well aware of this you know the russian and the ukrainian crisscross so seamlessly in many ways you you can't convey that uh now sometimes and i had to fudge on this i had to put in parentheses in russian in russian Mm -hmm. To indicate that when Marusia, for example, is speaking to the administration at the jail, she shifts into Russian. With her comrades, she shifts into Ukrainian. In disharmony, when they're talking about the pogrom at the very end, you know, <clears throat> she's very concerned about you know the Orthodox Ukrainian that the pogrom has happened. So I don't know if I can even trust you. And he goes, Leah, how can you say that? And there's a constant shift. When she speaks as an official position, she shifts to Russian. When she's speaking to the man she was planning to marry, she shifts into Ukrainian, and then she, she gets caught where it gets mixed. That for an audience of his day would immediately be picked up. Where when you come into translation, you say in Russian, you know, it's going to seem like, why are you, it's an intrusion into the dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, What's the difference here? Mm-hmm. It doesn't carry that resonance. Uh, of class, for example, uh, officialese, right, often in Russian proclamations and so forth, or even the kind of surgic mix that you get among certain workers and so on. So that, I think, was the worst and is probably a curse not just for me, but all of them. I think the problem for today's translators is that Ukrainian has shifted to terms that my generation doesn't know. I will. I will admit something. At the very first association this was I think 1990 September first conference where foreigners came pouring into Kiev, and I was giving a, a talk on Khleubey, uh, so you know controversial figure. There's a lot of interest, and it uh, was the editor or one of the editors from I think Cesspit, and I said, look. I don't want to could you take a look at my Ukrainian It was eight pages you know just just so that I don't want you know she. Mm-mm. so she sat down it took her you know only 20 minutes, 15 minutes. she goes, mm, no, it's okay. I, I don't see any grammar, but we don't speak like that. <laughs> you know and you really realize what has happened, that it's the Ukrainian of the immigration. So fortunately for someone like Venichenko I could actually still rely on my parents and a living generation here to check some things. You know, masni mm-hmm. ochi. I didn't know what that was. I thought, what are you talking about masni ochi? You know, and my mother goes, oh, what did you read that? I said, well, it's the Vindachinko. Well, you know, so that's a phrase that I am sure, I don't even know if they use it in Ukraine today. You know, it's like, but you still had a living memory where you could draw on. Mm-hmm. And um, I know someone wrote to me and said after this translation appeared, you know, what did you see as some of the problems? And I said, well, contemporary literature is going to require your generation, mm-hmm. you know, or someone with that kind of interface with your generation in English, because it's already gone for us. We don't pick up the Ukrainian, the jargon, you know, the this mm-hmm. or that, you know, this is what a taxist would say. Mm-hmm. And i nice, say, what? You know, I remember that Right after Gorbachev, you know, the literature was free in Russian and we were teaching a class and uh, one of the professors says, oh, this is an interesting text for the students. And it's about a babushka who comes from the village to Moscow. And the taxis decides, oh, I can take advantage of her and drive her all around and rack up, you know, a lot of money. And she won't know. So there's a lot of jargon. You know, I don't know what it is. You know, it's very contemporary. And of course, then, of course, his conscience takes over and he he doesn't charge her. But the point is that the language was like, wow, you know, um, so that I think is a huge difference between what century are you translating things from and, you know, things that even into English to try to give the kind of jargon. And so much of it is a play on Russian and English, We were doing something, you know, Mm Googluvate, you think. And I know my students couldn't figure out what it was. It's like, Vate? I said, yeah, Google. It's like, oh, my goodness, you know, or display. And you think, oh, that's for English. It's like, yeah. Every Ukrainian grabs a younger generation, picks up right away. Mm -hmm. And they know what sphere, social class, and everything. So those, I think, at least for Vinichenko was the Russian-English issue for me.
0: It mm-hmm. yeah,
2: uh- was lost.
1: Uh, Yes, Um, but I really appreciate that you decided to mark the switch from the Russian language to the Ukrainian language because it really matters. Uh, It matters for the narrative and it matters for the characters and it matters for those maybe invisible political statements as well.
2: Yes, yes,
0: Yes.
1: And to be honest, uh, I discovered the Ukrainian part of Rohol through the English translation that didn't include any mark of the Ukrainian words which were used uh, in that particular text. Because I was reading Gogol in translation, in English translation, and I was feeling that I don't feel the Gogol that I knew that I read in school. And then I realized what really um, disturbed me, I would say, was that lack of Ukrainianisms which were included in his text. Uh, and uh, that's why, uh, That's why. Uh, well, again, thank you for putting that mark And thank you for taking that into consideration
2: because uh, it can really change the perception of the text. It is clumsy, you know, but in a written text, okay. But see, imagine this is performed on stage. You're not even going to see that now. You see, that's the thing that is like, and you can't, there's no way to mark it. Where any audience in Ukraine, as soon as they hear this, this, they know exactly what's Mm -hmm. going on, why it's going on this way, what it indicates and everything. And that's all going to be lost in a performance mm-hmm. in English, at least in the written text, you can see it mm-hmm, because I've mm-hmm. marked it that way. But that's the that's the part I think is um, there's just no no real easy way around mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. you know. And the same thing with the folk songs. You know, he gives the first couple lines because he doesn't need to give anymore. Every Ukrainian or the audience, oh, yeah. and so I know the sujet of that song. I know all the blah, blah. It's like, mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, and the same thing with so many of those uh, Russian songs, you know, for the exiles, you know, you know, whatever it is. Every, all, you don't need to have to, to sing the whole thing to get it. Uh, so th- those are things that are so culturally contextualized that there seems to me that that you, you can do it in a written text by providing footnotes, explaining things, but I, I get nervous in a performance what would happen. I was hoping, you know, we're always hoping that they're, they're good enough to stage. That's what I think his play, you know, it's not a matter of that Ukrainian literature has to apologize for his work. It's like, oh, geez, you know, some of the plays you think are in you know. Okay, but, you know, these are good. And I can see why they translated him into German. It was very popular in Germany. And uh, you just realize, well, that that's, I don't know how a director is going to, or maybe one just can't, and mm. just as well, you know, you, you in your program, you can say, uh, please be aware, blah, 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 okay. blah, but that's all you can do.
1: Mm-hmm. And um, do you have a chance to uh, um, teach Vindicenko to your students? Do you include his works mm-hmm. in your course?
2: I haven't until, in other words, uh, I was asked this question um, you know, about translating. This was someone from one of the uh, institutes in, in Ukraine sent me a, an email, said, you know, I've come across the, the translation. Could you tell us about, the, you know, we're interested in the academic approach to translation. Mm-hmm. Um, my generation was still very much like missionaries. In other words, if you don't translate it into English, nobody's going to read it. Nobody goes to learn Ukrainian to go read some author. So you have to translate it. And all my contemporaries of my age group, from graduate school on, we are all translating. You probably know about the electronic library, right, from, uh, I think, University of Toronto has it, right? Mm -hmm. So they have all that in English. And, And that's fantastic because you have to make it accessible. You know, think of the same problem. I mean, this is what poor Milan Kundera, if he wrote in Czech, who's reading him? So he went to France, right? and wrote in French mm-hmm. and uh, everybody, oh, Milan Kundera. And whereas Havel, you know, Václav Havel decided, nope, I'm staying in Czechoslovakia and I'm gonna write in Czech. So, But that's the dilemma. You know, do you have a larger audience, smaller audience? And our whole sense was you can't teach these courses or these texts unless they're available. Mm -hmm. So um, Mm -hmm. it's been, when we teach literature of the other Europe, we do, it's a galop, you know, from the 19th through the 20th century up to the present, we do six literatures, you know, Ukrainian, Polish, not Russian, but Czech and Slovak Mm -hmm. and Croat and Serbian.
0: Mm.
2: But, you know, you... You can't do too much. So you're doing a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit there. And it has to be in English. So I can do recreations, you know, Andruhovich, mm-hmm. because it's translated. But if it weren't, that's it. You know, so you, you 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 try. And Vinicenco just came out. So I haven't been able to do it, but I think it would be interesting. And I, I certainly I know in Canada or in other courses where you can have maybe a graduate program, you can bring these things out. Um, but that that was the hope. It would, I remember giving a talk on Lesia Ukraine because, um, oh, it's a the Don Juan theme. Uh, I forgot. Oh, Kaminni Hospodar. Okay. And so when I spoke to the audience, they were floored that there was a woman <laughs> on the Don Juan. They'd never heard of that. It's like, and uh, as a result of that, actually, I think that's why the Talk. I expanded it a little bit more. Was published. In other words, they were so just amazed that they had never heard of this woman. Period. Anyway, and then here is a major. Blah, 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 blah. It's like wow. And she knew Molière, and she knew Pushkin, right? And she knew Don Giovanni, and all. And you think, wow. Mm-hmm. So that's what's. We're still at a stage where we're trying to get information out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, to go. Oh, and then several people did come up. You know, but feminine studies, you know, feminists came up, you know, blah, 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 blah. Because I said the main hero is not Don Juan. You know, it's like, oh, OK. So, you know, suddenly the it shifts a dynamic. And that's where I think we, we are uh, still trying to get why we need to translate as much as possible mm-hmm. so that it can become accessible. I'm so pleased that in Ukraine, they're putting so much online mm-hmm articles, you know, that are in journals, things that Costomaro wrote in the 20s, you have no access. And if you don't have access, you're silent. Nobody knows, you know. So it's a great step. Publish everything, get it onto electronic format, digital format so people can 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 read it.
1: Well, thank you so much for this uh, wonderful uh, conversation today. And, of course, uh, thank you for guiding us through uh, Benichenko's complex and multi-layered writing. Uh, and um, thank you for making uh, his uh, dramas, his writing, available to uh, Anglophone readers. Thank you so much.
2: All the best to you, Natalia. And to- thank you.
1: Today I spoke with George Mihaychuk uh, about his translation of Vladimir Venechenko's plays. Uh, the book is titled Disharmony and Other Plays, and it was published by Canadian Institute of Ukrainian Studies Press in 2020. Thank you for listening to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.